I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to dispel myths about aging, destigmatize mental health for older adults, and improve access to mental health care. Whether you're an older adult, a family member caring for an older adult, or a professional working with older adults, you're in the right place. And one more thing. If you're a licensed mental health provider like a social worker, psychologist, counselor, therapist, or an aging life care expert or certified care manager looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. All right, let's jump into today's episode. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know we've been talking a lot about managing chronic pain and the unique concerns and experiences of older adults related to chronic pain. Today will be the final pain episode for a while on the podcast, but today is a fantastic interview with Dr. Stephen Grinstead, who's here to talk about addiction-free pain management solutions for um, older adults and others who are living with chronic pain. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Stephen Grinstead. Dr. Grinstead has a master's degree in counseling psychology and a doctorate in addictive disorders. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist, a past California certified alcohol and drug counselor, and a certified denial management specialist and advanced relapse prevention specialist. From 2015 to 2018, Dr. Grinstead was co-founder and chief clinical officer of a triple diagnosis residential and intensive outpatient chronic pain management program in California. He's author of many books and most recently, uh, the book, Thank You Adversity for Yet Another Test, a body-mind-spirit approach for relieving chronic pain suffering. Dr. Grinstead is an internationally recognized expert in preventing relapse related to addiction and chronic pain disorders and is the developer of the evidence-based addiction-free pain management system. He's been working with chronic pain management, substance use disorders, eating addiction, and coexisting mental and personality disorders since 1984. And I am delighted to be interviewing him today. So let's jump in to the interview. Stephen Grinstead, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the podcast. Today, you're here to talk with us about the new rules of treating chronic pain, addiction-free solutions in the era of opioid crisis. This is such a timely topic, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. This will be exciting. I'm curious if we could start at what inspired you to pursue a career in addictive disorders. Well, it actually goes back a long, long, long way to my childhood. I grew up in a family system that had alcoholism on both sides of the family. And then when I was 12 years old, that was back in 1962, that uh, I got exposed due to an injury playing sandlot football with my cousins to being rushed to the emergency room. I lived in Pueblo, Colorado. I'm the oldest of nine boys. So the hospital knew the Grinstead boys. We One or the other was always there. So they rushed me in. I had got knocked down, hit my lower back on a concrete post, and uh, I was hurting. And they gave me an injection of something. At the time, I had no idea what it was. It was probably Demerol. But what I do know is what they sent me home with. They sent me home with a prescription for Tylenol codeine three. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, I didn't, I never used it at first for the physical pain, but what it did for me was took away all the psychological, emotional pain of being the over-responsible oldest child in a very dysfunctional family system. And uh, for the first time in my young life, I felt at peace. And so for the next 15 or more years, I found a way to get pain meds, but that wasn't the big piece. The next piece was I noticed there was a warning label on the medication bottle. It says, don't use alcohol with this medication. And well, yeah. And then I looked underneath at the fine print. It said, alcohol may intensify the effect. Yes, right on. So I was off and running. Uh, I was, I had a very active, hyperactive uh, adolescence. 
my junior and senior year in high school, I ran with a rough gang in my hometown. And then uh, a little bit later, I joined a professional gang called the United States Marine Corps and went into their special services, Force Recon Marine. And I learned how to be even more violent and have more reasons to get pain meds because we were always doing incredibly uh, crazy things like jumping out of airplanes. Uh, so on and on and on it went. And then the big turning point was one evening back in um, 1980. I was a single parent at this time with my young daughter. And I was at home getting ready to have dinner and the phone rang. And it was my daughter's school counselor. She said, Mr. Grinstead, we have a problem. I may need to report you to Child Protective Services. What? What's the matter? What's going on? He says, well, we had an alcohol and drug awareness day at school today. And your daughter told us that, you know, about how a lot of nights when you're having dinner, you have a bottle of wine and then you take your pain pills with it and then you get really silly. And we don't think that's a good role model. And right then that was a wake up call. Now I was high functioning. I was a black belt in karate. I was running multi-million dollar electrical construction jobs. So I was very high functioning, not the type of person you usually think of as an addict, but I was. And so I promised that I would stop. I'd never use again. I promised my daughter. I promised myself. I promised Sensei Richard Kim, who was at the time the most important mentor in my life. And about a year later, I broke that promise. And it was devastating. And that started me on the journey to recovery and what a year later would have saved my life. Because a year later is where the pain piece kicked in. A year later, I was getting ready to get out of construction and open my own dojo. And in our style, you had to have a second degree black belt. Now, about three months before the test time, I had herniated my disc L5S1. It was a minor herniation and it scared the hell out of me because I did not want to do the old way. So I finally went doctor shopping in a healthy way. And I found an orthopedic surgeon who was willing to do at that time, 1982, it was a very non-traditional approach. He did give me epidurals, which was great because that allowed me to do physical therapy, hydrotherapy, but he also hooked me up with acupuncture and chiropractic, which was unheard of back then. And uh, my physical therapist, uh, they put me through two or three and I kept overdoing. And so the last one they put me with was another Marine. And he says, you're in the medical rehabilitation platoon. Your job is to get better, not keep hurting yourself. And I listened. And that started my journey of going through voc rehab. And then I found out I really had good people skills. I was really loved working and helping people. So I was taking, I was a little bit obsessive compulsive. So I went to UC Santa Cruz and I enrolled in parallel tracks. One was counseling and the other was addiction. And I got certified in both. And then a local hospital hired me when, because I knew the medical directors. One of them was in recovery also with me. And we knew each other's stories. So they hired me to be the primary therapist for their addiction pain track. So they had an addiction treatment program. And they believe people with chronic pain who got addicted should be treated for both conditions at the same time in the same place. So that started my passion of professionally working with people. That was about 1986. And I really worked hard, studied, learned as much as I could. Then I was exposed to the work of Terry Gorski, my supervisor in 1988. He was one of the first group of therapists that got advanced certified in relapse prevention with Mr. Gorski. And about three years later, I decided I needed to have it. And we did not get off to a really good start. This man became my best friend and mentor. And But we didn't get off to a good start because he had the audacity the second day of the training, come up and say, Steve, you're in the middle of a relapse. You need to wake up. My first impression was, who the hell does he think he is? But the second was, wow, I better listen. So I was. I wasn't anywhere near even thinking about alcohol or pain pills, but I had stopped good self-care. I had started putting all my energy into the pain patients because our hospital had got bought out by a national chain. Mm -hmm. 
And the bottom line went from patient care to making money. And I was working 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours a week for 40 hours pay because my patients needed me. And so he says, that's, that's pretty codependent. And I says, you're right. So I went back and resigned and went back to grad school. So that started that next chapter. And then in the middle 90s, he challenged me with developing a protocol to help people in recovery who relapse with medication and pain issues. And so I developed a system I called addiction-free pain management. Now, a lot of people confuse this because it's not medication-free. Like in the subtitle of this course, it's addiction-free options. It doesn't say medication-free options. But what I do want to talk about today is how to reevaluate the traditional biomedical model for managing chronic pain. Uh, because it doesn't work for everybody. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. Stephen, I so appreciate your willingness to talk about your own personal and family life. The oldest of nine boys, I think, would cause anybody pain. <laughs> nine boys in 14 years and no twins. My oh mother my was God. a saint, believe me. <laughs> oh, I, but what I really admire is I think in mental health care, there's sometimes such a division between what a what a therapist or a mental health provider can say about themselves publicly and mm -hmm. for fear that it might taint or somehow um, influence the therapeutic relationship too much. And as a result, a lot of uh, mental health providers stay very closed about their own experiences. Right. I think that can have the effect of creating division between us and them and creating yeah. a sense of, um, do I, does mental health belong to me? And from the, from the clients or the patient's perspective. Um, and, you know, I personally also with these podcasts will share a lot about my own family experiences and, and different people and including my own experience with mental health. I just so admire your willingness to share with us how your family system and how your genetic loading and how your own personal experience with pain and pain management and the psychological aspects of pain, um, how that all has influenced a career that is helping so many people and very yeah. fruitful. So thank you very much for bringing your whole self to this conversation. Yeah. And the other big piece about me, which connects me with a lot of military vets I work with and active duty even, is that I also have severe PTSD from uh, adverse childhood events and Marine Corps time. So I'm also in recovery for PTSD and still have flare ups, nightmares and things at times. The thing is, I think appropriate self-disclosure is necessary, but over self-disclosure can be harmful. So when I teach therapists or counselors, there I have a whole segment on how to utilize appropriate self-disclosure. Yeah. And then I tell, I'll tell all my students, you know, what's really important is we should never ask our patients to do something we haven't or wouldn't be willing to do ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's kind of like my mantra. And, you know, the other thing Mr. Gorski gave me was before I, he let me join his team, I eventually became the clinical director for Gorski Synapse. But when I first joined his team, he said, you have to have a mission statement. So, oh, I was all excited. I put together a two-page mission statement. He sent me back two words, too long. 
So that freaked me out. Wait a minute, but I put all this time. So I cut it in half and I sent him back a page and he sent me back three words, still too long. Man, I was spreading at that point because how am I going to take this two page document that I poured my heart and soul into and down to less than that? And I put it down to a paragraph and he says, Steve, let's talk. When I say mission statement, I want a sentence or a phrase that encapsulates those two pages. So my mission statement since 1991 is I teach people how to help people. And everything I do is geared towards that. And I and then working with people with chronic pain and coexisting disorders, my mission is to help them reevaluate the traditional biomedical model and look at the whole person approach, biopsychosocial spiritual approach. So we're working with the whole person, not on the whole person, but with the whole person yeah. collaboratively. Yeah. We don't apply a treatment. We work toward something together. Yeah. Yeah. And I always tell my patients, I don't have your answers, but I'm a damn good coach and guide. I'll help you find your answers. Yeah. And we explore it together. And it's exciting. It's oh. fun. And it's so humanistic. And it come it's coming yeah. from them. They're more likely to follow through. And sometimes I have to use positive strength-based challenge with people because, you know, with both addiction, mental health, and chronic pain, there's a lot of systemic denial that sabotages. It's a good, healthy psychological defense mechanism, you know, denial, but it gets in the way. It keeps people stuck in a problem longer than they have to be. So we have to find a way to help them work through it. You know, there's a saying, you could lead a horse to water, you can't make them drink. The denial management model that I co-developed with Terry Gorski is designed to make the horse thirsty. Mm. And that's what we do. We help, you know, and help people see how they're getting in their own way. I, I've started calling it now the inner saboteur rather than denial. Mm, I like to that. use a lot of metaphors and stories, but the inner saboteur is much more palatable. Is it possible your inner saboteur is getting in your way versus is it possible your denial is getting in your way? Oh, you know, yeah. What a big difference. Oh yeah. The other is so confrontational. One is so oh, person-centered. No yeah, yeah. 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 I wanted to ask you about the term addictive disorders. I know like yeah. we have shifted in the field to using substance use disorders or what's Which, your take on that? I think there's way too much stigma associated with the word addiction. Yeah. When people think addiction, they think of people with heroin, methamphetamine in the gutter, homeless, uh, and all this. But what they don't get is that it's a substance use disorder. It's a neurobiologic brain disease. And the American Society of Addiction Medicine has said it impacts people biologically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. They added spiritual. And about, about six years ago, they added the word spiritual. So it impacts the whole person, right? So, And it's like any other chronic illness. And it needs to be looked at the same. And mental health is stigmatized in our society, too depression, anxiety, PTSD. So all, all this stigma is getting in the way of people getting good help. And as people age, it gets even worse because then you have the stigma, oh, oh you're just old, you know, yeah, and it, it's just ageism. It's just, so there's a lot of stigma attached. Yeah. And for some people, there's a, that develops a lot of internal shame, guilt, remorse, and they try to hide it. So they're not willing to be open and honest because they're afraid they're going to be judged. Right. And uh, judged from multiple perspectives, like a moral judgment. Well, you can just, yeah. you know, I remember growing up, I, I got the message about substance use disorders uh, that, well, it's just a choice. People can choose to just stop using or drinking or, or whatever the um, is happening. And and it took time in grad school and exposure to unlearn that message about, oh, it's just a choice and understand that yeah. it's a neurobiological, psychosocial, spiritual condition that's like a medical illness. It is a medical illness. And when, when, I, teach, when I teach students, whether it's medical students or counselors or therapists, uh, I remind them that there's a continuum of developing an addictive disorder and people that have high genetic risk and high environmental toxicity are at much more at risk for quickly going from misuse, abuse, pseudo addiction to addiction. 
and that we need to take that into account and not stigmatize it. So, and but we also don't want to use the this criteria, you know, the ACEs adverse childhood events instrument. It's a very good instrument, but it's been utilized inappropriately, especially with some of the new artificial intelligence screening instruments. Because if you score several of those ACEs, as well as some other things, it labels you inappropriately because there's no human interaction to check out the rest of the story. Right. Right. We could dive into this all day. I'm just, um, so let, let's move. Yeah. Well, I do want to um, follow up for 10, more than 10 years. Actually, I did a lot of my graduate school training and then worked at the Atlanta VA healthcare system for 10 years and did a lot of training at the Palo Alto VA and worked with the National oh, Center for PTSD I, for a long time. Oh, I remember those days. Yeah, Cupertino, so, Palo Alto. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say, I, I so exactly know what you're talking about with um, the, there is a, there are layers of stigma, I think, and shame related to substance use and mental health conditions for, for various populations. You know, there's stigma and shame for military populations and even era, like what era of service were you in? Were you a Vietnam era? There's another layer of, of stigma and shame um, versus the World War II era. There was much more nobility in fighting for. Um, well, and they this, those folks, they got parades when they came home. We right. got things thrown at us, spit right. at, called names right. after Vietnam. Right. And the, uh, and the quality of warfare was very different. The, the, yeah. I just, the trauma was the levels of trauma were very different. Yeah. Um, and I just, uh, so applaud your willingness to talk about that and sort of break down some of those stigma barriers. The other yeah. thing, as we were talking about older adults, uh, at the, at the VA I, for 10, more than 10 years, I worked with older adults. So that included like Vietnam era, Korean war era, world yeah. war II era veterans. Yeah. But the other feature about the stigma with mental health and substance use disorders around older adults that I see in my clinical work is the the myth that older adults can't change. So that yeah, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Right, right. And so if we have that belief system, and we're working with an older adult who might be struggling with a substance use disorder, you, you know, we're as as mental health providers, we're going to be less likely to help that person bridge yeah. to treatment than we would to somebody who we believed could change or, or had the capacity to change or um, was uh, redemption was available to them. I mean, I really see re- recovery stories personally as very redemptive. It's quite beautiful to see the arc of um, the struggle and the redemption and the hard work to get there. I, I just, I have so much admiration for this process. So I just wanted to throw in those sort of reflections that I had as you were talking about these different populations. Well, one more stigma population I just think we need to put in there is homelessness. Yes, 100%. There's a big, and do you know that what really irritates me the most is a big percentage of the homeless population are veterans, and that really irritates me. Yeah, it's it's tragic and heartbreaking, unjust, immoral as a society that we would allow yeah. that to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, all right, let's move, uh, transition from that to, uh, what we're talking about specifically today. So, um, what uh, you shared a little bit about what inspired your interest in chronic pain and addiction. Can you help us understand the, the intersection of chronic pain and addiction and the impact of chronic sure. pain on society? Sure. So I look at it as a synergistic process. Back when I started developing addiction-free pain management, uh, Terry I says, well, where do I start? He says, well, go out and do some research. At the time, I was teaching at Santa Clara University, UC Santa Cruz, UC Berkeley, and Stanford Medical School. So this was pre-Google. So research was way different back then. Uh, and you had to really get into good terms with the head librarians and their staff in order to do all these big searches. And so after about five, six weeks, I was totally frustrated because the search parameter Terry told me to look at was people who had chronic pain and addiction. What happened to them when they went and sought help? Well, I found nothing 
that matched that. I found a lot about people with addiction and what happened when they want help, a whole lot more on people with chronic pain and they want help. And then I realized we added, we have to add uh, mental health to this too. So we had to have mental health. So think of it this way with people who have um, a substance use disorder, addiction, whatever you want to call it, it impacts their life in four quadrants, bio, psycho, social, spiritual. So they have some symptoms or negative consequences because of their use of alcohol and or other drugs. Now, let's say a person with mental health disorder, whether it be anxiety, depression, PTSD, whatever it is, it also impacts those four quadrants, not in identical ways, but parallel ways, similar ways, biologically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. And then let's talk about people that just have chronic pain. Well, living with chronic pain impacts those four areas also. So if I were to draw a Venn diagram, I would have three circles. I would have the chronic pain. I would have that overlapped with substance use disorder. And I would have that overlap with mental health. So you would have the Venn diagram. And then in the middle, the circle I would draw was the addiction pain syndrome, the chronic pain syndrome. One plus one plus one equals four, five, six or more. So there's a synergistic effect. Now, here's what happens when somebody that has a triple diagnosis, addiction, mental health, and chronic pain, if they go see an addiction treatment specialist, they're dealing with one third of the problem. Yeah. If that same person goes to a chronic pain clinic, they're dealing with a different third of the problem. And if they go to a mental health counselor, they're dealing with a different third of the problem. They're getting what's called synergistic treatment, and uh, they're getting... Uh, one at a time. They're getting one thing addressed at a time. And what they really need is to bring it all together collaboratively when all three disciplines are working together as a treatment team with the patient being the captain of the treatment team to develop the appropriate treatment plan. So a synergistic problem needs a synergistic solution. That's why I developed the addiction-free pain management system is to concurrently rather than sequentially address the issues. So it needs concurrent intervention. Yes. And I think this really, really fills a major gap in the mental health system, because as I was coming up in my training, so I trained um, at a program at Stanford um, in the early 2000s. And one of the messages that we would get was that, um, before you could treat a mental health condition, you had to make sure that the substance use disorder was managed or under control or, or the person was in recovery. Like we're not going to start the, the message was, we're not going to start depression treatment for depression until the substance use disorder is, is knocked out. Right. Um, yeah. and so the person would have to jump through these hurdles and the person in, and, you know, is telling us the identified patient, the client is telling us I'm suffering, <laughs> I am suffering and I'm using substances and that's and, and treating my substance use disorder is not going to take away my suffering. I am suffering, suffering, suffering. And the, and the, the mental health system, at least the message, uh, prominent message I received was, nope, you have to treat substance use first. Cause I'm not going to, I'm not going to treat mental health until that's taken care of. Oh, have that's been a big that? part of my, that's been a big part of my professional career. I went on the international speaking circuit about 1996, all around the United States, Canada, et cetera. And I kept running into that same wall. And I told them that can be very short-sighted. What we need to do is do a thorough assessment evaluation triage. We need triage. And if you are dealing with somebody with severe depression, what makes depression worse? Substance use. And pain. And what happens if you're experiencing um, moderate to severe addictive disorder, substance use disorder? It causes more depression. Yes. So isn't it make sense that we deal with both concurrently? And that was hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around because that's not what was being taught in grad schools. 
you know, I graduated my master's in 1995, my doctorate in 2001, and I had to overcome a lot of stigma and bias. And it was, it was very challenging at times. And uh, when you start, and the other thing that's changed a lot since the mid nineties, when I started doing this, I always incorporated the spiritual into it. And boy, that was taboo at that time. But I'll tell you what, after my presentations, there was always a lot of people that came up and said, thank you. That's been a missing piece that really, you, the way you explained that you need to deal biopsychosocial spiritually, you have to deal with the whole person. It just makes so much sense. And it does. But what's happened with chronic pain is we've gone to traditional pills, shots, procedures, and surgeries, the biomedical model. If someone has coexisting disorders, coexisting problems, uh, that model doesn't work real well. 20% of the population is using 80% of the healthcare dollars because it's being delivered inappropriately. And then they blame the patient. Yeah, you're just not getting better. You're in addiction now. Now, you said part of your goal today is to help us reevaluate tradi the traditional medical biomedical model. So can we mm -hmm. take some time to do that? So sure. Yeah. Help us understand the, the you, you're getting into it right now, but help us really understand what the state is of the biomedical model and then how you would like us to reformulate our thinking. Okay. Traditionally, what happens is people with pain, uh, they first have acute pain. And so they get treated by usually a primary care physician, urgent care, emergency room, et cetera. And then when it doesn't get better, three or four or five months, then they refer them to uh, pain management, a pain management specialist. And they're always, the first approach is, let's see what kind of medication is going to help you uh, not suffer with your pain. And they, I'll, it's better today than it was, believe me. But back in the 90s, the early 2000s, it was we had bought into and drank the Kool-Aid of Big Pharma that medication was the solution. That's why we have an opioid crisis. It's exactly why we have an opioid crisis. And we have a lot of research that shows chronic pain responds really well to cognitive behavioral interventions, hydrotherapy, physical therapy chiropractic, acupuncture. We have research on all that. Do you know there is no level one research that demonstrates opioids are effective for chronic pain management? There's none. There's no level one out there because what happens is people exposed to opioids, they don't always, quote, get addicted. But what happens is it starts remodeling the system, and many of them develop what's called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is, to put it really simply, is they're hypersensitive to pain signals. And so tolerance builds up. We know that with any of the medications, the opioids especially, and the benzodiazepines, uh, and they usually co-prescribe those. So we're, we're trying to find a medication and what they're forgetting is my goal with chronic pain management is twofold, improve quality of life and level of functioning. The biomedical model for people with coexisting disorders cannot and will never do that. So biomedical model needs to take a look at more than the pills, shots, surgeries, procedures. We need to take a look at some other areas in the biological window are very important too that get overlooked. Diet, nutrition, exercise, the triad, you know, they, good hygiene, there's activity pacing, there's a whole lot of things biologically that need to be addressed, but we're not done because we need to then concurrently be working in the psychological, we need to assess and see, okay, how's the person functioning psychologically? Anxiety and depression are very, very common with people with chronic pain, as is unresolved trauma. That's the people that usually get in trouble and get labeled as addicts, with pain addicts, pain pill addicts, uh, because they're not addressing the mental health symptoms. They're not developing a treatment plan that designs that. And then we have to take a look at the social family component, cultural family social piece. And we need to see what are the person's assets and liabilities in that area. Uh, 
what what do they need to be doing socially that's going to help them move out of the problem into the solution? If we don't educate family and friends, in my book, Thank You, Adversity for Yenner of Tests, there's a whole chapter on the role of family and friends that my, uh, when I ran a, uh, from 2015 to 2018, I ran a residential chronic pain triple diagnosis program in Southern California. The person I hired for the family program, Dale Ryder, was a licensed clinical social worker, but I had been following her work with family systems for years on how to deal with families that have substance use disorders. So I trained her to add the chronic pain piece. So when I was putting the book together, I asked her to co-author that fifth chapter with me because I wanted to bring her wisdom in to the role of family and friends. So that has to be in there. Uh, Self-help programs. Well, AA and NA don't work really well for chronic pain people because the first thing they're told is if you're on any kind of medication, you're not really in recovery. So that's why there's programs like Pills Addicts Anonymous and Chronic Pain Anonymous that are my preferred entryway for people. With the pain. Uh, because, because they need a social support. And I don't care what the social support is. They need appropriate, healthy social support to be healing that part of the damage that's been done with their pain, addiction, and mental health. Then we're not done yet. Then we move to the spiritual area. So people who develop these triple diagnoses, uh, they are often isolated from their spiritual values, practices, and principles. So one of, the, one of the assessment instruments we use in our program, we use two spiritual assessment instruments to see how people were functioning. We had assessment instruments for all four of the domains plus the different mental health conditions and the uh, physical pain versus psychological pain that I developed. There's all kinds of things we did. But when we got to the spiritual, we wanted to improve their spiritual levels of functioning. And we, the first trap we fell into was the first thing we better do is differentiate between religion and spirituality because that got a lot of blowback. So we did that. So once we have, when our collaborative treatment planning, everybody's treatment plan had to have all four quadrants. They had to be working on improving their levels of functioning in all four quadrants, biopsychosocial, spiritual. And that's what I'm talking about when I said addiction-free solutions. And some people needed to be on appropriate medication management for the mental health and the chronic pain. So, you know, it's not stop the medications. It's let's use them strategically and smartly while concurrently dealing with the other three domains. That's so helpful. I, I am not a substance use disorder specialist, but I recall years ago, hearing, and I don't know how valid this is. I'm, I'm asking you as an expert, is this valid? I recall hearing that when a person is in recovery, like if they go into a detox kind of system, an inpatient detox, the more that we can alleviate the withdrawal symptoms and the physiological distress, the better the outcome for recovery. Do you know research on that? Yeah, that, that's very true because a lot of times there's the tough love people, the social model detoxes where people just you know, grin and bear it. But the combination of some of these substances people are using, they really need to use medication-assisted treatment, MAT. Only about a third of the people that need MAT get it. And it's some people that get it shouldn't be getting it. It's not one size fits all. And here, a resource for you folks would be SAMHSA put together what they call TIP-84 and it was revised in 2018, and it was medication-assisted treatment. And a big part of it talked about not just the three medications they authorized, but also the importance of the psychosocial interventions that need to be concurrently delivered with MAT. So yeah, people that have a better taper, detox, whatever you want to call it, it's not the problem is that the insurance companies have sabotaged this because they're always claiming medical necessity. And that they, they, we've got into a problem to where medical doctors and healthcare providers are now being driven by people that don't have medical degrees or clinical degrees. They're di dictating terms of treatment. And that is just so wrong. 
because people really sometimes need, oh, three to seven days is usually a good for a mild substance use disorder detox. Some people need seven to 14. Some people need up to 21, 31, 41 days of taper uh, or appropriate medication-assisted treatment taper. Transition, it's a transition. But they also need to be working on building their levels of functioning and quality of life in all four domains at the same time so that eventually we take them off the medication-assisted training wheels. As we were preparing for for this, um, you had shared with me that uh, to your point about who's dictating you know, treatment, and, and I, I think you were alluding to that insurance companies are dictating treatment, um, uh, longevity, like how, how much treatment is indicated, how long that treatment can last. We're experiencing that with what my six-year-old right now for a treatment for asthma that anyway. Um, so I, I'm, I'm in the mix of it right now for, yeah. for one of my own kids. And, um, and as we were preparing, you had shared with me a pretty astounding number that chronic pain costs the insurance company. I think this is back to your 2080, 80 kind of um, principle just a minute ago that 20% of the population is using 80% of uh, healthcare that, insurance. Costs. That's correct. Yeah. And you had shared with me a number of um, uh, like direct costs and lost productivity. Um, I think it was something like $500 billion or something. So in 2011, a report came out that talked about Chronic pain was costing the insurance industry over a half trillion dollars, 500 billion, over 500 billion dollars in direct cost and lost productivity. And that at the time was more that was being spent on heart disease, diabetes, and cancer treatments combined. And then it just has continued to get worse to the point to where, like I said, uh, 20% of the people were starting to utilize over 80% of the healthcare dollars. Uh, they weren't being treated wisely. They were being treated foolishly. And a lot of people were suffering and dying because they weren't getting the type and levels of treatment they needed. And what we discovered was when you deliver this kind of concurrent, collaborative, biopsychosocial, spiritual approach, the outcomes are phenomenal. One of the biggest things that it's it's now becoming standard to be accredited, you have to be outcome data driven, right? But that's relatively new. But I've been encouraging people to do that since the late 90s. I, every time I went in and consulted, helped programs develop a chronic pain track, for example, says you need to have outcome measures. You need to have outcome measures. So in our program, I developed and collaborated with some other psychologists and medical doctors come up with 13 different pre-pre-post outcome measures. And so every single person that went through, uh, went, before we delivered any treatment, we would assess them and get what their measures were, anxiety, depression, pain, et cetera, PTSD, spirituality, family functioning. We the, There was a whole level. And... Then at three weeks, we did it again. We did it again at three weeks. So to help better determine whether our original treatment planning was on track or whether we needed to modify it. But we also did it as a way to show the patients how far they've already come in just three weeks. Then we did it near the end of treatment, not at the end, but right near the end of treatment. We did it a final time. And that helped us develop their continuing care planning. We can show them, okay, you started here, you got here, now you're here, but you've got more to go. Continuing progress. You, you just can't rest. So the metaphor I use for people is this healing process, recovery process, whatever you want to call it, is like walking up a down escalator and having a mistaken belief, if I stop, I'm going to stay in place. They stop doing what got them better, and they don't even see that they're going down. The inner saboteur is now in control. And, and at a circle, a full circle moment, because of what you shared about your own recovery process, when you were in that prior to, to going to grad school or going for your doctorate, um, your supervisor had said, you're in relapse and you had, yeah. yeah. And you hadn't had a, a drink and you were on that. You were not doing, I was 10 years. I was 10 years in quality recovery and I was in relapse. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. On that escalator going down. I was going down and didn't even see it. Yeah. Yeah. So back, back to that full, full, 
full circle point. You have done such a beautiful job uh, illustrating for us the biopsychosocial spiritual model of understanding um, pain, substance use, mental health conditions, how they all overlap and how it requires a holistic treatment, not a one, one, then one, then one, not a fragmented treatment. Right. Not sequential. Not sequential. Yeah. I'm so curious because of that spiritual religious piece, I can, I myself was a skeptic when I was going through grad school. I am much more open to the spiritual piece than I was ever before. And that's because I'm doing my own work to become more open personally. But um, I appreciate that you distinguish between religion and spirituality. Dr. Lisa Miller at Columbia, I think she has a spiritual and neuropsychology lab. So they actually look at the brain and spirituality and are doing yeah. kind of what you're talking about, but, but also creating a foundational of research to support it as well. Um, and that's helped me and my own skepticism too. For other mental health providers who might be skeptical like me, who might be like, thinking, well, I don't do spiritual counseling. How would I include this? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, first of all, there's a great resource. On my website, I have an articles page. And one of the articles is the role of spirituality in chronic pain management. And it gives a good foundation of religion versus spirituality. What are the spiritual values, practices, and principles people need to develop? Many people have these values and don't even label it as spiritual, but they're spiritual values. So the first thing is to build a new vocabulary, right? So that article, I don't have time to go in depth on it, but that would be a great free resource. All the articles and video blogs on my website are absolutely free. We'll link to that in the show notes, of course. You mentioned a couple of other resources that I just want to capture before we move forward. The SAMHSA tip 84, did I get that Uh right? Uh Okay, we can link to that. You also mentioned um, the alternatives to AA for some folks with chronic pain. There was Chronic Pain Anonymous. Chronic Pain Anonymous is one of the biggies. That was one. Every program I've helped develop, I've asked them to make available on their campus a Chronic Pain Anonymous meeting. We had one in our program, too. Uh, It's a great way to enhance the social component because people now will be with homogenous population, people with chronic pain. So, but where these pain patients go into an NA or an AA meeting and they're on medication assisted treatment, they're being told you're not really in recovery. Right. And it's really stigmatizing. It's really stigmatizing. So they need to have their own. Pills Addicts Anonymous was uh, started by a recovering physician who knew the importance of And AA and NA, by the way, have conference-approved literature that states that some of our members need to be on appropriate medication for appropriate conditions prescribed by appropriate prescribers. And they're written by recovering physicians. But yet, when it gets down to meeting level, a lot of people say, don't use nothing no matter what. And that, in a lot of cases, that's good wisdom. But in some cases, it's a death sentence for someone with chronic pain and coexisting mental health. And then if you're, if you're elderly, it gets even worse. Yes. So let's, let's transition there. So you, we were talking about that downward escalator, and we kind of have a good frame for how do we approach therapy, and we need those four quadrants, and we need to attend to them synergistically, not in a one-step uh, approach. And now um, you had... I think what's helpful in preparing for treatment and um, collaborative treatment is understanding some of the obstacles and barriers. And so Mm -hmm. what are some of the most common obstacles or barriers for positive treatment outcomes? Great. And that's always a great question because uh, when I do my trainings, my uh, professional trainings on this, the number one primary obstacle to having good outcomes for people with chronic pain and coexist disorders is our failure to identify and or treat coexisting disorders, coexisting problems. That's number one. So it's, they're not being addressed and it will sabotage the pain management. The other one is family system problems is another very, very uh, big roadblock for a lot of people. But then guess what? Healthcare providers are also a big problem. Judgmental healthcare providers. 
uh, I can't tell you how many people, when they get referred to me, I'll, one of the questions they ask, why do you think you were sent to me? Because they don't believe me. They said, it can't be that bad. The MRI, the CAT scan says it can't be that bad. It's all in my head. And the stigma and shame and guilt, remorse. You know, after I educate people, I say, you know, let's talk about that first day. You know, when they said it was all in your head, well, guess what? It really is because we interpret the pain signals and then we assign meaning and values to it. And sometimes over time, that system, that processing system gets corrupted. The going in the thalamus, right? The, thal the pain signals go up there to get evaluated. We send messages free frontal cortex to the amygdala limbic system. So we have thinking and emotional responses to pain signals and they get distorted or amplified. I call it the amplifier circuit. So that's, that's a big, that's another big uh, obstacle is people are using their medication for psychological and emotional pain symptoms, not for the physiological ones. Yeah. And that's where the non-pharmacological interventions are really important. They do not have non-pharmacological interventions. Uh, the other big obstacle is people being passive recipients rather than active participants in their healing process. That's a big obstacle. So those are some of the major obstacles I've seen over the years and continue to see with people with chronic pain and coexisting disorders. Yeah, so the uh, failure to identify and treat coexisting disorders, that was the number one obstacle you identified. Yeah. Family system problems. So There's a biggie. Well, yeah. either they get enabling or codependent or they get burnt out and shaming, blaming, and blaming the victim, or they even leave, they abandon, right? So that's the family. The healthcare providers are judgmental and uh, not listening, not listening to where the person's really coming from, right? They're not hearing that. And a big other problem is using medication for psychological, emotional reasons. And then another big one is people being passive recipients rather than active participants in their healing process. Right. Those are the biggies. Yes, I definitely have seen that. Um, I worked in concert with primary care and the medical system for a long time, treating older adults. And I recall sometimes the, the person who is being referred would experience the referral as punishment. Yes. Like they can't help me in primary care or whatever the system is they're in. So they they're saying, you know, that I have to go to mental health care. But this is not a mental health problem. This is a physical health problem, and you know, and I'm I'm being punished for coming here. And um, and the this even if it would be very helpful to receive mental health care in that biopsychosocial spiritual model, the delivery of the the message and bridging is yeah. I have experienced a lot of harm in that process, or patients and clients experiencing a lot of harm in that process. So Regina, one of the things I don't want to forget to mention, you know, I said failure to identify and treat or manage coexisting disorders. Uh, well, let's list some of those for people with chronic pain. I'll list some of the ones that I've seen that are most common. So one is people that have medication misuse, abuse, pseudo addiction or addiction. That's a coexisting problem. If they're going in for chronic pain treatment, that can sabotage it. Uh, if they're going in for mental health or addiction, unresolved trauma is a really big one. Depression is the uh, very common for most people living with chronic pain. Anxiety disorders, sleep disorders, cognitive impairment from living with pain, not from the medication, but from living with pain. And then another one that often gets overlooked is people using food to cope instead of for fuel, and they develop eating problems, eating disorder problems. So those are the most common coexisting disorders. That's very helpful. That's an excellent list for us to be mindful of. And we can see how they really overlap because yes. disorders affect cognitive functioning, pain affects cognitive, you know, all, all of it really does overlap. Yeah. So the synergistic approach is key. Yeah. Since our mission is to ensure that older adults have improved access to mental health care and reduce stigma for older adults related to mental health and substance use disorders, will you share what some of the unique challenges are for older adults when it comes to effectively managing pain? 
Oh yeah. One, one of the big ones uh, is as we age, uh, we're not able to physically do some of the things that will help our pain condition because my premise is flexibility and mobility are my best friends. That's why four to five days a week, I swim 30 to 50 minutes each time. And that's my major um, exercise modality. I also bike and walk. So as we age, though, you know, back before my injury, I was probably running eight to 10 miles a day and swimming a mile a day to prepare for my black belt test, my second degree black belt test. Well, I can't do that now. So, and as I'm getting older, I'm finding that it's a little bit more challenging getting up in the morning and try to take self, talk myself out of going. And yet, you know, the benefit of that though is yesterday uh, we were getting ready to have a snow. So we still had a bunch of leaves out in the yard. And I wanted to get all those out. And because of my activity pacing of keeping myself in physical good shape, I was able to do that without hurting myself. So as we age, though, activity pacing becomes crucial. So that's a big part, appropriate activity pacing. Uh, some people try to do too little. Other people try to do too much. So we have to set, what are your goals for activities? And I have an assessment I develop for people. They rate themselves where they see themselves. And then I want you to, what, over the next week, I want you to set a goal for increasing. And what a lot of the uh, type A personalities like me do is they, they try to go for 20, 30% improvement. I says, no, no, we're not going to go there. You know, 10%. Let's, let's, keep it, let's keep it low. Start low, go slow. That's my motto. Start low, go slow. So having a good appropriate activity pacing plan in place. The next one is, as we age, is the way we metabolize different medications that's really crucial. And to realize that for most pain flare-ups, non-pharmacological interventions are going to be much more helpful than taking oral medication. And a lot of people don't believe this. One of the things when I was consulting with pain clinics in Sacramento, uh, when they had people that they had a policy uh, that they would not, if people ran out of medication, they would not refill until it was time to refill. And when people started habitually doing that, they would refer him to me for an assessment and treatment planning. And nine times out of 10, I found out that what they were doing was when they were having pain flare-ups, they'd take an extra dose of their pain meds. And that's all they were depending upon. So helping them see that, that activity pacing, and I have a, another resource I teach people as I give them a worksheet, it's developing a pain flare-up plan, non-pharmacological pain flare-up plan. And in this plan, I describe what it's about and everything. And then there's a checklist of about 40 different interventions. And I says, look, these are things that my patients have told me that's helped them with flare-ups. I want you to pick four or five of these that you're going to add to your plan and you're going to practice. And so learning these, and then when I would do the assessment with people that were running out of meds, it says, okay, so you, you took that for a flare-up. How long before you started feeling less pain? Oh, five, 10 minutes. <laughs> that told me right there, it wasn't the medication. That was the placebo effect. That was the expected placebo effect because it takes anywhere from 45 to 75 minutes for oral pain medication to start being effective. And yeah, if they do something like a stem unit, electrostim unit, ice, stretching, uh, hydrotherapy, uh, yoga, tai chi, they'll start getting relief in five to 10 minutes. So it's teaching, especially as we age, we need to find out what is age appropriate? What, what can we do? Uh, we can't judge ourselves by what other people, like if we go to a class or something, we can't judge ourselves by how other people are performing. No, we have to be working on us. We need to improve our goals, right? Not compare ourselves to other people. And for elderly people, that's hard. And definitely there's been a lot of research on elderly, how they definitely change how they metabolize different medications as we age. It definitely changes. And then there's the problem of a lot of elderly people are on multiple medications and there's that synergistic effect with those. So, you know, we need to really be cognizant of that. Yeah. The medication so the, interactions are the, so dangerous. Yeah. And how many medications does the person really need to be on? 
you know, I don't play doctor with people about that, but I want to collaborate. I always get releases signed and I collaborate with their healthcare providers to try to find a way to improve their levels of function and quality of life without hurting them with the side effects. Yeah. I think most geriatricians would agree. Uh, that's a primary care provider who specializes with older adults for our listeners, but most geriatricians would agree that, um, the, the bare minimum medications to meet the maximum effect, right? We don't that's want right. so many medications in a body. And let's, let's introduce some biopsychosocial spiritual tools instead, right? That's right. Yeah. And one of the great things about older adults, and I, I'm, I'm suspecting, I don't specialize in, uh, in substance use disorders with older adults, but older adults, uh, tend to have higher levels of resilience than younger populations. And so one of the sort of anti-ageism um, techniques, like if, if we're really dedicated to having an anti-ageist practice is to, to sort of build on the resilience that the older adult is already bringing into our clinic rooms and therapy rooms. And all the wisdom they bring with their life experience. And we sometimes forget that. That gets discounted in our culture. And the higher levels of self-regulation and emotion, um, emotion regulation. Yeah. 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 Um, Stephen, this has been really enlightening and helpful. I am, am curious. One, so you, you mentioned a, a book that you had written can, and, and I mentioned that in the intro. Can you share a little bit about that and share where people can yeah. learn about you? Yeah. My website is uh, www.drstevegrinstead.com. Very simple, drstevegrinstead.com. And on that site, I've got free articles, free video blogs, my publications, my training page to where people can get uh, self-paced digital trainings or how they can work with me directly. Uh, I also, there's on that same page, there's a way for people that want to do empowerment coaching with me or healthcare professionals that want consultation or training, you know, individualized. So. Those are some of the things I offer through my website. Of course, I, I highlight my book, my latest book, number 16, Thank You, Adversity, for Yet Another Test, A Body-Mind-Spirit Approach for Relieving Chronic Pain and Suffering is the subtitle. And that one was based on my whole years of experience, plus those four years running that residential chronic pain program. And in that, I composited four of our pain patients and demonstrated what their pre-outcome measures were, what they did to get to their post-outcome measures, which were, the aggregate was 53% improvement, which, as you know, in the field, anything over 30% is significant, right? We had 53% for our aggregate. And some people were higher than that. Of course, some people were lower than that. But that, that's what the book walks through. And there's, like I say, there's a whole chapter for family and friends because family and friends can sabotage effective recovery for not just for the chronic pain, but for substance use or mental health. So the family needs to have a parallel process. Yes. So what we did was we had a cyber educational program for the family members and then a three-day personal retreat to where Dale Ryder, my family therapist, would uh, spend three full days with them. And it always ended with an equine session with the family and the pain patients. And it was just amazing. Some of the healing we got to see. Yeah. And I'm still doing empowerment coaching with a few of them for their continuing care because uh, they need tune-ups periodically. Sure. So I, go ahead. We'll, we'll definitely link to all uh, to your site and your book in the show notes. I'm, I'm, Curious for uh, a private practice clinician who maybe has um, a 60 something year old individual come into their office with chronic pain, overuse of opioid meds, um, and, and mental health concerns. Where, how would you encourage them to start? And um, what, what would you say that should be their, their think, thought process? Okay, well, knowledge is power. That's my premise. But a little knowledge that acts is worth more than all our head knowledge in the world that lays fallow, right? So 
that's why I put all the resources on my on my website. They're free. There's also at the bottom of the articles page and the video blog page, there's an archive page for those. So if people want to educate themselves, you can tell by the titles of each of the articles what you're going to get. Uh, one of my latest one that's up there now is looking under the surface of chronic pain. What people usually see is pain behaviors, complaining, suffering. But what they don't see is what's going on under the surface, the co-occurring, co-existing problems, and the reason people get in trouble with medication. They don't see that. That's all. That's under the iceberg. All they see is the tip of the iceberg. And that's actually the visual I use with that article is an iceberg. Yeah. So a clinician deepening her understanding or their understanding of the pain experience that what yeah. you might be seeing in the clinic room is is the tip of the iceberg to look deeper. You're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. You need to dive deeper. You need to do a deeper dive. And one of the most important things to do is to identify and manage the psychological, emotional symptoms of the pain. And, you know, that's, that's something that an instrument I've developed, I started working on it in the late eighties and I continued fine tuning it up. And I think it's the last version was finalized in 2019 but it's got 27 items of physical symptoms and 27 items of psychological, emotional symptoms. And uh, if people are interested in having a free copy of that, they can email me. My email is drgrinstead at yahoo.com because that's what I believe is really, that's one of the things I do at every first session with people. I want to help them differentiate between the physical and the psychological, emotional. I don't share the results of that until after I do some education about all about pain. I, I guess, so if people are interested, you can email Dr. Grinstead and, and get that measure. Well, Dr. Grinstead, thank you tremendously for this wealth of information and just a really enjoyable conversation that was easy to digest um, and really validating of the human experience. Please stop the sequential treatment and use concurrent collaborative treatment with the patient being the captain of the team. Bravo. I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so Thank much. You. That's all for today. Just a reminder, if you're a licensed mental health provider looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.